One way to think of our life is this. What, what is our life? What is, what is it? Our life is the compilation of the answers that we give to the questions that we face. So we're constantly faced with questions, with decisions that we have to make. And our answers to those questions, our decisions, build out the structure of our lives. Now, of course, the questions we are asked vary in degree of significance. From the relatively insignificant, what will I eat for breakfast? What will I wear today? What podcast will I listen to on the drive? The answers to these questions most likely won't have a massive impact on our lives. But then there are, of course, the very significant questions. Who will I marry? Where will we live? Where will our kids go to school? Though we know God providentially governs all things, which puts even these questions into perspective, these clearly are far more important. The downstream consequence of these decisions are much more significant. But there is one question that far and away is the most significant question we will ever face. How, how we answer this determines everything. And it is this question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Not who do others say he is. Who do you say he is? How you answer that question is the most important answer you will ever give. It is the question that determines both how you will live today, whose allegiance will you be under, and where you will dwell for eternity. You can give some bad answers to questions in your life and recover from that, but not this question. Get that one wrong, and the consequences will be devastating. And so it is vital for us that we listen closely to the one place where we can get that answer authoritatively, namely from the word of God, namely from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. And this is the glory of Palm Sunday, which the church universal celebrates today. Palm Sunday is not only the beginning of Holy Week, but Palm Sunday is the moment Jesus opens the eyes of the crowds to allow them to start to see with real clarity who he is. Because during his ministry, his glory, his identity was in large measure veiled, only breaking through from time to time through, through healings or through miracles or through interactions with the Pharisees or when he personally self-disclosed to the disciples, for instance, when he would Calm the storm like that with a word. And they said, who in the world is this that can do that? Or even overtly when he took three up to the Mount of Transfiguration and they beheld his glory momentarily. However, even when his true glory broke through for a second, the text will say, and Jesus strictly charged them, the disciples and those who saw the miracles, don't tell anybody who I am yet. But on Palm Sunday, all of that changes. Now, word had already started to get out. We were told that many who were charged to not reveal his identity didn't listen and did and went and told everybody. We're told that substantial crowds are now following Jesus. Crowds who had witnessed his healings. Crowds who had seen him challenge and silence 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees who said, this man speaks with a a true authority. Crowds who had heard him proclaim that the kingdom is at hand. Crowds that were distressed and oppressed and were longing for Yahweh to return to deliver them with a king. Yet up until now, Jesus had refused to let them make him king. Why? Because my time has not yet come. So there is an incredible energy, an incredible expectation and anticipation that has culminated into this singular scene, which we call the triumphal entry. And all of this is made even more charged because this is the commemoration of the Passover. That's what the week is that's coming up. And during the Passover, Jerusalem would swell from 40,000 people, give or take, to around 200,000 people. So you have all of this energy, all of this expectation, and all of these crowds flooding in. And even more, remember what the Passover was. It was the annual feast commemorating God's deliverance of the Jews from tyranny. But the Jews were still in bondage under the two-headed tyrants of Caesar and Herod. And so the Passover only heightened their hunger for the true deliverance that Yahweh had promised he would bring. And so this is the scene that we are entering into as we come to the triumphal entry. This is the glory of Palm Sunday. It is the moment when Christ begins answering the world's most important question. The most important question for the crowds then and still the most important question for us now, namely, who is Jesus Christ? Really, who is Jesus Christ? And so turn to Matthew 21. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. All four Gospels have the account of the triumphal entry. It's a very clearly important part, but we will attend to Matthew's today. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them. Bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them. At once, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus 
from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, as we absorb this text, and specifically as we consider who it reveals Jesus to be, though the scene is impactful and it's dramatic in its own right, something that becomes very obvious is in order to truly answer that question with any measure of depth or dimension or gravity or even truth, we must answer it in light of the way Christ is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. First, not only does the text itself require that of us, in that it specifically points to prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling, but it turns out that this text is absolutely dripping with Old Testament fulfillments, some of them a little bit more hidden, but they're there. And, and that makes sense because the entire Old Testament, beginning in Genesis 3, right after the fall, is ultimately looking forward to the one who would come to save the nations, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent, the one who would come and establish God's kingdom again. And so when Jesus enters through the gates during the festival of deliverance, on what we know to be the beginning of his Passion Week, we should expect prophetic fireworks to be going off all around him, as it were. And that's exactly what we find. So as we answer the question, who is Jesus Christ really from this passage? We're going to consider it from the lens of the Old Testament prophetic fulfillments, considering two in particular, though there's many places we could go, we're going to hone in on two. And we're going to discover that there is far more than immediately meets the eye. Jesus Christ is far more than good teacher, far more than even my own personal savior. Jesus Christ is always so much more than we realize. And so first, as we answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Number one, he is the glory of God returning to his people. He is the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh, returning to his people. The most dramatic and devastating event in the history of Israel was then when they were taken into captivity by foreign nations. This was when, because of Israel's rampant idolatry and hard-heartedness and apostasy, God decreed that he would judge them at the hands of their enemies at the hands of pagan nations. And this happened to the northern kingdom of Israel at the hands of Assyria in 721 BC and to the southern kingdom of Judah at the hands of the Babylonians in 597 BC. And it was a time of utter devastation and utter violence and of lamentation and humiliation where God's people were not just forcibly removed from their land, as terrible as that was, but when Jerusalem itself, the, the city that Jesus is looking at, was reduced to a heap of burning rubbles by an unclean people directed by the hand of God. If you want to get a picture of how horrible it was, go read the long poem that we call Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's all about that. It's a lamentation about the devastation of Jerusalem. Yet despite all the horrors of exile, the physical dev devastation wasn't the worst thing. 
There was something that was even more terrible than the destruction of the temple itself. And we get this poignant, this painful moment recorded for us in Ezekiel 10 and 11. And it is when the Lord gives Ezekiel the wild and dramatic vision of his glory, his earthly presence leaving the temple. And I'll pick up in mid-vision in Ezekiel 10, 18 through 19. It says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, and it stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate. Note that. We'll get back to it. Of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And then skipping ahead to Ezekiel eleven twenty three, 23. This is the decisive moment. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. And it left. And it went to the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So remember last week we spoke of the wonder it is that we are indwelt by the spirit of the living God. That God is not just around us, but he is in us. Well, this is a new covenant post-Pentecost grace. In the older order, God's presence dwelt with his people in the temple. It was confined to the holy of holies. So imagine if you can that because of your sin and your rebellion, the Holy Spirit left you. The, your immediate access to God was gone, that God had withdrawn from you. You had it, and then it was gone. Imagine the devastation of that. The pronouncement of anti-Emmanuel. God no longer with us. Well, this, in a sense, is what happened to Israel. They had become so eaten through with sin, so proud in their rebellion, that the image of God was so marred that he removed his glory and he removed his presence from them. Ezekiel saw it happen. The presence of Yahweh went out the east gate and stood on the mountain to the east of the city. Well, guess what the name of the mountain to the east of the city is? It's the Mount of Olives. The glory had left. The exile had come. This is the vision God gave Ezekiel. This is the bitter fruit of their sin and rebellion. The glory of the Lord went out the east gate and left through the mountain. And we see this even happening in our day. Sin being celebrated and glorified. Rebellion being codified in the language of fundamental human rights. The image of God becoming so disfigured in man and woman We see it in the entertainment of our times, which defaults now to the obscene. We live in a time where we are experiencing the judgment of God coming upon a land for its unwillingness to repent. And we might be tempted to lament with Ezekiel in some ways, and we'd be right to. We long for the glory of God to come upon our land and to bring repentance and revival. However, like the song we just sang, We must remember that in Ezekiel's visions, God's glory is not departing from a pagan people. It was departing from God's people. So as we even consider that vision, we must first look at ourselves as a church individually. Holy Week beckons us to ask, where do we fall short of the glory of God and think it no small thing? 
Where do we dig in our heels in rebellion to God's righteous decrees? Where in our lives is God's glory stifled and choked out? Ezekiel saw the glory of God go out from the temple by the east gate and set on the Mount of Olives. The glory had departed. But in God's grace, that was not the final vision that he gave Ezekiel. In fact, the entire end of the book is an extended, glorious prophetic promise that the story was far from over and the glory was not gone forever. That God's intention was for his glory to return to his temple and to return to his people. Ezekiel receives this vision in chapter 43. At the beginning, he says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner courts. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And so, as Jesus prepares to enter into Jerusalem by the east gate, he stops at the Mount of Olives. He knows the vision that he gave to Ezekiel, both of them. Everything here is on purpose. This is where he will begin his official entrance back into the city. Because Jesus is not just a new rabbi coming to observe the Passover. Jesus is the glory of God in the skin of a man returning to his temple and returning to his people. Returning by the same path that he had departed during the exile. Through the east gates. Coming from the Mount of Olives, the east mountain. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. It was glory as of the only son coming from the father, full of grace and truth. Matthew 1.23, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God come to us. And now the people are beginning to see it even clearer. Jesus Christ is the glory of God returning to his people, bringing the final end of exile. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And it is only through Jesus Christ and our faith in him that his glory returns, and it does. Next on Palm Sunday, we see that Jesus Christ is, number two, the king come to conquer Israel's enemies. He is the king come to conquer Israel's enemy. And if our first one, our first identity requires some reading between the lines, this one is crystal clear. We see it explicitly in the text in two ways. First, in the way that he comes. Second, in the honor that he receives. So Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. He's preparing to make his kingly procession into the city. He tells the disciples to go and procure a donkey and a colt 
And this was a very specific request. It was because it was prophesied about the coming king. Matthew tells us, beginning in verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burdens. And so the crowds, many of whom, of course, would have known this prophecy, they would have seen it as clear and as bright as a firework going off in front of them, respond in recognition of him, paying him homage, putting down the cloaks off their back and palm branches that they cut down, laying out, as it were, their version of a royal red carpet and yelling to them, him, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So, son of David is code for the king. Second Samuel Yahweh says to David, I will raise up an offspring to establish your throne forever. And I'll be his father and he will be my son. What's it say again? Hosanna to the son of David. So they're celebrating not just the king has come, but even in saying Hosanna again, that's from Psalm 118 in our call to worship. Literally save us, we pray Yahweh. And Jesus receives that. He's come to save them, yes. He's come as his glory returning. And he's come to conquer their overlord and their enemy. And in this sense, they are exactly right. This is why Jesus has come. He has come as the king who would conquer Israel's enemy. But this raises a question. At least it does for me. If Jesus is the king, come to claim a crown, come to conquer, come to set up a throne that is higher than Herod's, come to establish a kingdom that is above Caesar, he's going to face some resistance, I would expect. So why didn't he come with a huge battalion? He could have. Why didn't he come with mighty cavalry? Why didn't he come with 10,000 spears all around him? You don't conquer from a colt. You conquer on a war horse. That's the first principle of kingship. Right? You don't conquer from a colt. You conquer from a war horse. Is that not correct? Well, the answer is, it depends. It depends on who the enemy is. Yes, they were right. He came to save them. He came to do battle. He came to destroy their greatest enemy and to establish his kingdom over it. But Jesus knew something that they didn't know, and it was this. Israel's greatest enemy was not Rome. Their greatest enemy was not Herod and his corrupt temple. Their greatest enemy was Satan, sin, and death. So yes, if Jesus intended to overthrow an earthly enemy only, he would have used earthly weapons. He would have come on a war horse with 10,000 spears. But that wasn't where his sights were set. 
Because Jesus intended to overthrow a cosmic empire which required a far greater weapon. A weapon powerful enough not just to crush the king of Rome, but to crush the prince of darkness. A, power, a weapon powerful enough not just to overthrow the sins of the scribes, but to undo the cosmic curse from Adam's sin. A weapon powerful enough not just to put some of Israel's enemies to death, but to put death to death. And what weapon could possibly do that? Well, there's only one. And only Jesus Christ could wield it. And it is the weapon of the perfect sacrifice. The weapon of the God from the highest heaven descending to the lowest hell. The weapon of the creator of life emptying himself by taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's why King Jesus, when he came to save, didn't first come on a war horse. He came on something far more powerful. He came humbly on a donkey because he first was on a downward descent because he was going after a much larger foe. He was going not just into the shadow of Rome, he was descending into the very heart of darkness. And he was going to stab it, not with a sword, but with a cross. And this is why, just a few days later, the cry from the crowd would turn from Hosanna to crucify him. His kingly conquest had not gone awry. That was the plan. This is how the cry for Hosanna, for the Lord to save, could only be answered. Through a force farther than a, stronger than a sword. Through the perfect propitiation. Through the ultimate atonement. Through the Lamb of God come to the last Passover. Through Yahweh on a cross. Or... As Aslan called it, through the deeper magic, a power much deeper than the sword. From the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the witch knew the deep magic. There is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness, into the darkness, before time even dawned, she would have read there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would work backwards. And Lewis was right. That was a commentary on reality. This is the actual story of the actual world that we actually live in. And only God's Messiah was he who had no treachery. Only he wielded the deeper magic. Jesus Christ was the only king who could wield the most powerful weapon. Only he was a king with strong enough shoulders to carry the world's cross. Matthew tells us in our text today that the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, that is, save us, Messiah King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And five days later, 
There hung his bloodied, broken body. And Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the onlooker said just a few verses later, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They said that because they didn't know the deeper magic. They didn't know the deeper magic yet. For he was saving them. They cried Hosanna five days earlier and Christ said, okay, I will do that. Your enemy, your true enemy, not the enemy that you think is your most fierce enemy, but the true one, he'll fall. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 13, speaking to the church, speaking to Pilgrim Hill, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with a legal demand. And this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And when he did that, the text says, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Death is the enemy that the, the, the weapon that the enemy wields, and Jesus put death to death on the cross. And because he conquered our greatest enemy, God's glory has returned to us. For we are now the temple of the living God. We are the final temple, Ezekiel saw. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this Palm Sunday, Pilgrim Hill, behold Jesus Christ. This is the answer to our question. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the glory of God returning to his people. And he is the king come to conquer Israel's, namely our true enemy. And as we push out into Holy Week, let us do so with celebration and with sobriety. Let us consider not just our salvation in this season, but also our sin that required it. As we dwell on our King Jesus, let us remember this week that though the crowds finally saw him for the king that he is, the cross would come before he took the crown. And this Good Friday, we will come together to hold a vigil at the foot of the cross. But until then, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who came in the name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at the triune rescue plan that in eternity past, you created, you inaugurated. And so, Jesus Christ, we stand in the crowd, and we behold you as the Son of David, and we bless your name. And we behold you as the image restorer and the glory giver.
and we bless your name. And Father, we would ask that even this week you would allow us to feel the weight of our sin so that we can see the glory of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, and feel the glory of his gospel, the glory of being pronounced once and for all beloved and redeemed and blessed by God and princes and princesses in the kingdom of God through Christ. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.